When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. I'm on Putin's kill list and I'm still here because this is what we need to do to stay and fight. The Prime Minister risks looking really badly out of touch if he's using this war to justify the net zero agenda. Come on, there are going to be people who aren't going to be able to pay their gas bills and heat their homes and cook their food. We're practically looking at the return of Starsky and Hutch, aren't we, Halligan? (laughs) Or Kojak. Who loves you, baby? Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Brace yourself, co-pilot. It's an intergalactic news tsunami. As the Russia-Ukraine conflict rages, refugees are fleeing to Poland and beyond. The UK government's now paying families who host Ukrainians who come to Britain. As energy prices spiral, Boris Johnson's boarded a plane, shock, to travel to Saudi Arabia. As we try to ban Russian oil, the Prime Minister hopes the desert kingdoms can supply more of the black stuff. Even the Iranians seem back in favour, despite Tehran's oil having been banned from Western markets for years. But that could soon change too, such as the determination of Europe and the US to use less Russian oil and gas, stemming the flow of petrocash into Moscow's coffers. But what really strikes me, co-pilot, as we ride the wave of historic events is what we're not talking about. This East-West economic war has escalated an already serious cost-of-living crisis as fuel and food prices go into orbit. Rishi Sunak's spring statement next week is, in my view, the most important financial set-piece the House of Commons has seen in years. But as the news tsunami engulfs all before it, and we focus on conflict, inflation and other 1970s flashbacks, what we've stopped talking about, the dreaded virus. Vladimir Putin's not a popular man in these parts, but he's ended our fixation on COVID. (laughs) Say what you like about the Russian dictator, but he's aided the stripping off of masks in the United Kingdom. Oh, God, Liam, where on earth are we supposed to start? I was quite impressed that Gypsy Rose Halligan, who's been staring into his crystal balls for months, foresaw this absolutely savage cost of living crisis families facing the biggest pressures on their budgets for 50 years. I saw that the Resolution Foundation has warned that inflation could soar to 8.4% this spring, the highest since 1982. We're practically looking at the return of Starsky and Hutch, aren't we, Halligan? (laughs) Or Kojak. Who loves you, baby? Actually, I'd like the return of Kojak. I'll have to buy a whole jar of those lollipops (laughs) like you used to get in the sweet shop. Remember the jars with the sort of screw-top lids? They used to be glass when we were kids. They're plastic Mm. now, of course. They are. But this sharpest drop in household income since the mid-70s, I've just written in my column that in absolute high dudgeon at the government's mismanagement of the energy policy, I'm going to buy a wood-burning stove. We were laughing last week, weren't we, about going off grid and living off roast squirrel. But I think it is coming to that. Looking at this spring statement that you just mentioned at the top next week, seriously, is Rishi Sunak going to stand up and not cut 
fuel duty. There is a huge VAT windfall. I was reading about this. Hundreds of millions of pounds are flooding in to the treasury as petrol goes over two quid a litre, filling up the average family cars over 90 pounds now. Surely Sunak isn't going to sit there by the dispatch box and not back off from any of these rises in national insurance or indeed giving us the windfall tax that Labour is calling for. I think he's under huge pressure, Alison. I'm hearing all kinds of people, not only on the Labour benches, but on the Tory benches too, talking about the idea of a windfall tax on the big petrol companies. There is a sense, they will deny it, of course, that they're pushing up prices of petrol and diesel. And as you say, in some parts of the country, we have seen £2 a litre already. They're pushing up petrol and diesel prices But when oil comes slightly off its peak, as it has in the last few days, we were up at $138 at one point. We were down below $100 in the last couple of days, though it's bouncing around. You don't see petrol prices coming down, do you? (laughs) The petrol they're selling us now is refined from oil that they bought months ago. Anyway, it seems that there is a lawful lot of opportunism. And this is what happens in an inflationary environment, Alison. Companies, even if their costs aren't going up, Everyone else's costs are going up, so they whack theirs up too because they've got to make a living and buy stuff. So that's why inflationary expectations are a self-fulfilling prophecy, as economists often say. People usually stare at me as if I've said something completely ridiculous when I've said that in the past. But now they're starting to get it. Now they're starting to get what inflation is like. Of course, most of our media class and even a lot of our political class weren't alive. They weren't sentient in the 1970s. But people are starting now to realise that inflation can become a self-fulfilling prophecy once it gets above 5 6 7%. And yes, the Resolution Foundation said we could see 8% peak inflation. They said to their credit, picking up on a theme that we've been developing on Planet Normal, that the lower down the income scale you are, the more inflation you endure because you spend a higher percentage of your money on these necessities like fuel and food and clothing, and they're the goods that are going up more than the others, as we've been seeing. But I think for months now, the real rate of inflation has been in double digits, even across the board. I frankly believe the official figures. I'm not saying that the ONS, which in general is an excellent statistical body, our own Office for National Statistics, I'm not saying they're telling porkies or they're rigging the numbers. I'm just saying that their methodology the way they collate inflation figures, the basket of goods that they use. I just think it's too out of date and too slow. I don't think it's keeping up with what's really happening in the real world. And I think you're right. Rishi Sunak likes to say he's a sort of small state conservative, even though he's been spending huge amounts of money. And perhaps because he has been splashing the cash during the COVID pandemic, he feels the need to reassert his ideological credentials by not splashing the cash now. But you know what, Chancellor, you can just blame the war. Well, we've been getting emails from listeners and from Telegraph readers saying they've had emails and letters from their energy companies saying increase your direct debit from £330 to £600 a month. These are catastrophic costs, Liam, aren't they, for your average family budget? And looking now to obviously the incredibly urgent action, like me buying a wood burner. Are you really going to buy a wood burner? I am. I'm (laughs) seeking advice. You're going to buy a sort of pretty one though, aren't you? Is it going to have sort of ribbons on it or something? The co-pilot is going to be cutting down (laughs) ash trees to come and put the logs in. Alison Pearson with an axe. It just doesn't add up. You could make a sort of slasher horror movie based on that concept, but no one would believe it. You'd just use a gun because it's less messy and you wouldn't break a nail. I love a real (laughs) fire. And I am just incandescent because we have been talking, haven't we, about this absolutely lunatic pursuit of net zero, a sort of ideological crusade, I think, of the wealthy intellectual classes, which, you know, poorer people in our country are going to be paying for. And I don't know if you saw, Liam, that Boris wrote an article on The Telegraph this week, and I noticed that readers were incredibly disappointed. The Prime Minister seems to be 
stubbornly insisting he will stick to the net zero by 2050, rather than admitting this was not really going to be possible without plunging most of the population into a deep freeze. And that the, as far as I can see, the government's focus needs to shift back to fossil fuel immediately to ease the pain for British households. And Boris wrote, let me just quote you this bit. He said, green electricity isn't just better for the environment, it's better for your bank balance. A kilowatt from a North Sea wind turbine costs less than one produced by a power station running on gas shipped to the UK from overseas. And if a quarter of our power wasn't already coming from renewables, your bills today would be even higher than they are already. Well, sorry, Prime Minister, that's complete bunkum, isn't it? Because British power stations don't need to run on gas shipped to the UK from overseas. Here's an idea, Boris, we could stop importing and start fracking for shale gas and drilling like crazy in the North Sea. And that second part of our Prime Minister's statement, Liam, also massively disingenuous, if you ask me. He's saying if a quarter of our power wasn't already coming from renewables, your bills today would be even higher than they already are. Well, as far as I'm aware, co-pilot, 25% of our energy bills is going towards renewables. That's the green subsidy, plus those 5% the Treasury gets from VAT. So even Velma failed a maths O-level can tell you that a third of these absolutely soaring energy bills are not necessary. They could actually cut some of that at a time of crisis. And I think that the Prime Minister risks looking really badly out of touch. If he's using this war to justify the net zero agenda, I don't think he'll be forgiven by the voters. I find it really depressing. Here's the ideal chance now to reverse course and make better choices for our country instead of doubling down on this lunacy. I'm upset by a lot of that, Alison, but you know what upsets me the most? Is it me intruding into your subject matter with my jejeune ideas? I can deal with that. (laughs) (laughs) But in 90 plus episodes of Planet Normal, you quote the Prime Minister's smelly old column. You never quote mine, do you? There's no justice in this world. I've loyally stuck by you. All the trials and tribulations of our endless voyages through intellectual space. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I did think the column was disingenuous. I agree with you completely, Alison. I think both of us, it's fair to say, we broadly support moving towards renewable energy. We broadly support weaning ourselves off fossil fuels. We broadly support harnessing wind, solar, other renewables, getting smarter about the way we fuel our economy and heat our homes and cook our tea than burning coal or burning wood, even if it looks quite nice in your living room. There are better ways with hydrogen and other forms nuclear. There's a long way to go with civilian nuclear energy, which is broadly green as we learn how to deal with the waste. So I do broadly agree with you, but there's a kind of time problem here, isn't there? In the long term, yes, that makes sense. But in the short term, hydrogen, renewables, they're not going to replace fossil fuels for a long time because you need the baseload, you need the constant supply when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine We find it very, very hard to store renewable energy. The battery technology isn't there at the moment. And this is a moment, I think, when we should be opening up more fields for development in the North Sea, when we should be considering whether or not we go for fracking for a while. I do think some of the dangers of fracking have been over-exaggerated. I think there's been a lot of alarmism by a very well-funded environmental lobby I don't think fracking is a lot of the answer. It will take time to get shale gas up and running. But what's undeniable, Alison, is that in the US, where they have been using fracking a lot, they have now achieved some semblance of energy security, which they didn't have before. The US is now, after years of not exporting energy, for years after the oil price shocks of the 70s, it was practically illegal to export energy from the US on national security grounds. Now they are exporting energy. They're exporting LNG, liquefied natural gas in ships across the Atlantic, as the Prime Minister referred to. But that's a lot more expensive than producing our own energy. But domestic US gas, for that reason, is a lot cheaper than our domestic 
gas that we buy on West European spot markets. So this is a huge moment for Rishi Sunak, for Kwasi Kwarteng, the business and energy secretary, and ultimately for the prime minister. This does not seem the right moment to push the kind of Chiswick, West London green agenda when people are literally choosing between heating and eating, when people are seeing their businesses collapse because they can't afford the energy bills, not least manufacturing businesses in those red wall seats that are often very, very energy intensive. I still don't feel, talking to the politicians that I do, and I know you talk to lots of them too, I still don't feel our political class really gets how tight this cost of living squeeze already is and will become in the weeks and months to come, not just on fuel, but on food. Fertiliser prices are going to the moon, 200 quid a tonne this time last year, over a thousand pounds a tonne for fertiliser. My local farmers in the east of England are being quoted. Farmers use a lot of fertiliser. They use a lot of fuel. Both fertiliser and fuel are very expensive. That means even if we shift to domestic food production, given that Russia exports so much food, Ukraine exports so much food, even if we switch to domestic food production, it's still going to be really expensive food because of those fertiliser and those fuel costs. So I don't think the Chancellor can stand by and say that he wants to be a small state Chancellor And for that reason, he's not going to extend help. There's going to be some very, very tough choices. These are very serious times, which calls for serious debate and serious decisions that need to be made. And that's why I do believe this spring statement is meant to be a kind of mini budget. It is the most important financial statement in the House of Commons since the global financial crisis, in my view, of 2008. One slightly entertaining thing, I think, is that the invasion of Ukraine and all this energy crisis, what it's done is it's reordered the world's top 10 bastards. So Vladimir Putin now straight in at number one. But Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's crown prince, who until about yesterday was on the international naughty step after the murder of the exiled journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and even as recently as Saturday, executing 81 of his domestic opponents. But now we're seeing Boris of Arabia meeting Gulf leaders in Saudi Arabia and the UAE yesterday, basically going cap in hand, asking them to pump more oil to get us out of this spot. I understand that the Biden administration is not speaking to the Saudis because of Khashoggi. So it's our prime minister now going to ask the Saudis to relieve the acute pressure on Europe following the Russian oil embargo. But a little positives come out of this, Liam, because we have seen this week, yesterday, in fact, the fantastic news of the release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe finally released by Iran after six years of cruel and unfair captivity. Now, the official line or the sub-official line is that the UK has paid back a 400 million debt. But also, what do you think, co-pilot? Do you think that there's some manoeuvring along the lines of if Saudi won't come up with the extra oil, maybe they can persuade Tehran to? Is there some room for negotiation. There were sanctions, weren't there, after I think the 2015 nuclear deal fell apart. What do you think is going on? I think it's hard to say from where we're sitting, but it's certainly definitely true that Iran is now a key player, given that so much Iranian oil is sanctioned and not able to get to world markets. I mean, it does get to world markets as there's something called round tripping where the oil is sort of disguised. But you know, Iran is also an energy superpower, huge amounts of gas and oil. If that oil could replace Russian oil on Western markets, then that would certainly be a big strategic move for Putin. But the Iranians and the Russians are pretty close. I know that from living in Moscow and talking to lots of people there. There's quite a lot of strategic crossover between those two countries. And this really does bring OPEC centre stage. We remember from the 70s that oil price shock in 1973 when the OPEC exporters cartel was really getting into gear and in protest at war between Israel and Egypt, 
the Arab world, if you like, stopped pumping oil to the West. American cars literally shrunk almost overnight. The big gas guzzlers suddenly became compacts and it totally upended the global economy. And then there was another shock in 1979 after the Iran-Iraq war, of course, and again, big inflation in the late 70s. So this is big geopolitical stuff. This is the great game playing out in front of our eyes. I'm absolutely thrilled to know that Liz Truss, our foreign secretary, has now confirmed that Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe is going to be released. How wonderful for her and her family. Her little girl can actually see Mm. her mum physically, how awful that must have been. I wouldn't like to make a direct link between oil wars and so on and the release of somebody who, it strikes me, was always completely innocent. But there's certainly a lot of manoeuvring going on. There's manoeuvring going on with the Qataris to use their LNG, their liquefied natural gas, of which they have a huge amount. But to get LNG out of Qatar, you've got to go through the global pinch point of the world energy market, which is called the Straits of Hormuz at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. Those straits, a very narrow body of water controlled by the Iranians. (laughs) So the Iranians have a lot of power here. Yeah, great. (laughs) Geography always wins, you know, geography always wins. You've been saying for so long, Halligan, haven't you, that this dependence on commodities, what's your economist phrase for these basically dangerous hell holes where we are (laughs) dependent on getting very crucial things for our economy from morally murky places? And it's that dependence, isn't it, which is coming to the fore now. Or are the places morally murky because they've got the hydrocarbons? In parts of Africa, people called oil the devil's tears because wherever there's oil there is political ferment and unrest and massive foreign meddling as a lot of the indigenous people would see it yes uh, there's a lot of oil and gas in tough places and that makes extracting it tougher but are they tough and financially and politically unstable because the oil and gas is there it's hard to know i tell you who we're really dependent on we need to worry less about putin and the iranians than we do about the Norwegians. If they stop sending that Christmas tree to Trafalgar Square every <laughs> Christmas, then we're properly properly up the swanee, as it were, because we get so much of our gas through that Langeland pipeline that crosses the North Sea from Norway to the UK, as well as interconnectors to France, of course. We are at the end of the kind of European, West European gas complex, which has much of its origins in Russia. So we've always been energy insecure. And that's why I think some of the decisions that have been made by successive governments, Labour and Conservative, not just on net zero, which I broadly support, but as long as it's done in a pragmatic and grown-up way and energy security and the real world aren't constantly trumped by chest-beating, virtue-signalling, cabinet ministers in tears when they're making announcements because they're so emotionally moved. I mean, come on, there are going to be people who aren't going to be able to pay their gas bills and heat their homes and cook their food. That is much more of a problem, it seems to me, than the other priorities that ministers seem to have. But we are in a new great game and a lot of stuff, a lot of considerations, geographic considerations, energy complex considerations, which are ordinarily the stuff of nerds and people who spend too long on the internet like me, they are now mainstream domestic and international politics. And in that sense, I think this is a turning point in the way we run our affairs. I do think from now on for the foreseeable future, it's going to be a return to grown-up leadership and grown-up debate about what really matters. Something I picked up in the column this week, actually, was we've tended to forget about COVID, even though there are lots of cases around at the moment, nothing too bad. I was talking to our George this week. So George is our source within NHS England, whose true name and identity and gender we do not disclose in order to protect him or her. But we report George's figures because we believe that they're true, but it's hard to verify whether they're true or not because they're given to us before they're published, if indeed they're ever published. 
Yes, and George says ICU occupancy with COVID continues to be extremely low. So despite this recent increase in general COVID admissions, there hasn't been any increase at all in the ICU. There were about four times more ICU beds occupied by COVID patients last summer than there are now at the tail end of winter. The cases are higher now than they were then, but they are not serious. And you'll be delighted. What's my favourite word, Halligan? Go on. Nosocomial. Nosocomial. The percentage of patients contracting COVID in hospital is back up to one third. Well, how about cleaning the bloody hospitals, NHS? Just quickly, next week, as well as the spring statement, next Wednesday, when Rishi gives his spring statement, is the second anniversary of three weeks to flatten the curve. It was indeed the 23rd of March 2020 when the Prime Minister put the country into lockdown, something which had never been recommended in any pandemic plan because it would be too damaging. This is something very interesting for us, Liam. We both appeared last week, a rare appearance on planet Earth on the Dan Wooten show on GB News. Dan on his fantastic show is conducting his own kind of lockdown inquiry. And this week, Terms of Reference were published for the UK COVID-19 inquiry, which is going to be chaired by the former High Court judge, Lady Hallett. I've had a look at the remit. It does seem pretty broad, but there are already some pretty worrying omissions, I would say. Nothing about the longer effect of lockdown on children and young people. We've just heard, Liam, that mental health services received a record 4.3 million referrals in 2021. And the Royal College of Psychiatrists has called it the biggest hit to mental health in generations. So my concern really is that Lady Hallett actually looks not just at the government, seems to be quite keen on focusing on the COVID deaths, the COVID bereaved, but as we've repeatedly talked about on Planet Normal, there are lockdown deaths, lockdown bereaved, people whose mental and physical health, livelihoods, education were damaged by action taken by ministers, scientists, civil servants and the NHS. And it's just far too easy for, oh, it's the pandemic that did it, to become a scapegoat for human error. Now, I think it's just worth saying to Planet Normal listeners, and we will put this in the show notes, that the inquiry is running a terms of reference consultation, which is open for the public suggestions until the 7th of April. Now, I wrote several suggestions of what they might be looking at in my column this week. You can see that as well from the show notes. But I think, Liam, we absolutely cannot let this become one of these dreadful lessons have been learned. Let's move on because this must never be allowed to happen in our country again. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. Today is day 22 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, 22 days. And today's guest is one tough cookie from that brave yet benighted place. Kira Rudik has been a deputy in the Ukrainian parliament since 2019. She is the leader of the country's voice party. Previously a critic of President Zelensky, Kira has rallied behind his wartime leadership. She was born in 1985 
Now, co-pilot, since the war broke out, Kira Rudick has become something of a social media phenomenon with her posts about taking on the Russians, and she herself has been training to use weapons. One of her posts read, I learned to use Kalashnikov and prepare to bear arms. It sounds surreal, she writes, as just a few days ago, it would never come to my mind. Our women will protect our soil the same way as our men. Now, Liam, Kira is refusing to leave Kiev. She has 30 members of the resistance living in her house. They're training, they're volunteering at hospitals or wherever help is needed. Earlier this week, I began by asking her if she felt the war was getting closer and how she's coping day to day. Yeah, the Russians are getting nearer. This is a simple answer to that. So the daily life is very different from what it was before the war. So let me tell you about today. The night was very hard. We had a massive shelling throughout the city. Mm. And you know that because in 20 days, you get used to shelling. And you sometimes even don't go to a bomb shelter. Mm. So tonight, the shelling was so heavy that I woke up of the explosions and we had to run and to hide because it was uh, pretty scary. And it turned out that today, during the night, four buildings in Kiev were destroyed. And the amount of people who died, we don't know just yet. And it happens because we are still very weak in terms of the air protection, the air for support. So after we woke up in the bomb shelter, we had to drive into the places where the shelling occurred to see if the people need help. And uh, as a member of parliament, you do a couple of interviews, then you do the training. And today we also will have a parliamentary session in Ukrainian parliament. I cannot tell you the time and the place, but we will definitely be having it because this is our duty. And uh, after that, we will go to the central train station where the refugees are coming through the whole Ukraine. I will be helping out organize the processes with the refugees. It is a tremendous pain for my country and for my people, what is happening right now. Kira, can I just confirm, so the bombs that dropped, that they have come much closer into the centre of the capital, is that right? Yeah, that is correct. And this meeting of the parliament that you're having, how many MPs do you think will be there? How many have stayed and how many have left? So we plan to have almost the full hall of people and almost the whole or the full parliament. There are just pro-Russian party who fled and the rest are staying in Ukraine. And right now they're getting to the Ukrainian parliament to be able to vote for their necessary legislation pieces. And we already like getting people from all over the country. They kind of know what's going to happen, but we'll tell them the place and the time in 15 minutes before it will start. We'll have to get in, vote and get out. Wow. That's real. That's real democracy, isn't it? Under pressure. It is. You know, my new favorite story about Russia and Ukraine, it's actually tragic, but it's also very bright. So two or three days ago, Russian forces kidnapped a mayor of one of Ukrainian cities and installed another person and saying this is the mayor. And the first thing is like we are talking, but could you like just imagine what's in their minds? that they're thinking that this is how democracy can work, that you just can kidnap a mayor and then say, here is your another mayor and deal with that. This is not how it works, guys. Then this is, shows you the main difference in between the democratic countries and the tyrannies where they're thinking this way will like work. Are you expecting President Zelensky to be at the meeting of the parliament today? I don't think that he will be. He will be addressing the United States Congress. So he will need to get ready to that. We are on a close contact with the president right now. So I, I don't think he would need to be there. It will be increasing the threat. And we know what we got to do. And we will fulfill on our duty with or without the president as a parliament. He's been an, an inspirational wartime leader. He addressed the British Parliament last week. Do you think there's an argument for him leaving Kiev rather than run the risk of being killed with the terrible effect that would have on national morale? Yeah, well, I think he needs to stay. We all need to stay. And we all need to show our people, Ukrainian people, 
that we all have a bet in this. We all have a chunk in this. We are all risking our lives same way as we are asking Ukrainian people to risk their lives. So I am here in Kiev. I'm on Putin's kill list and I'm still here. I don't want plan to flee. I am saying whoever I ask to stay and fight, I'm here with you because this is what we need to do, to stay and fight. And this is our obligation. This is what we want to do. I know you're doing training to use a gun. Are you seriously, Kira, going to fight Russian soldiers when there is a huge risk you could lose your life? That seems surreal to me. It seems surreal to me as well. If we all know what happens with women in the cities that are taken by any kind of soldiers, right? I uh, have never held a gun in my life before this. And my soldiers' fellows tell me that there is a huge difference in between fighting and training for fighting. And I do really hope that I won't have to. But I also understand that at some point it's very likely that I will. We've seen Russian soldiers occupying parts of Erpin, which isn't very far from the capital. Have you got plans in place if there is a siege? And do you have enough food and weapons? Yes, we are getting ready for a siege. We're building the whole city as a fortress. Right now it seems we have enough food for Everybody in the city, we have a storage of food, water. We have backup electricity plants. As for my resistance team at home as well, we have like a month's supplies of food and water and we have foam batteries, etc. We do hope that we will be able to keep them entrances and exits from the city so they will not be able to get in and, and control those. You spent part of your childhood in the U.S., Kira. You attended high school. Do you understand why President Biden says NATO cannot create a no-fly zone over Ukraine? Yeah, I do understand this. I do not agree with this, but I do understand. So look, if we say that Putin is a new Hitler, and we do say that, and that the Third World War has already begun, and I insist that it already began, we are saying that Europe and United States have learned nothing over 100 years because now the actions are the same as in the Second World War, where allies were taking time before the right decisions were made. And they did not learn the point that tyrant and the aggressor is never satisfied with whatever he takes. Never. So Putin is very blunt about saying, I will take over Ukraine and I will go further. For some reason, Biden and European leaders hope that this wouldn't happen. This attempt of NATO countries to live in the illusion that nothing bad will happen, it's just something that hurts me a lot because Ukrainian people are buying this time for the countries like United States, like United Kingdom, like European countries to understand what's going on. We are buying this time with our lives. Everybody is saying we don't want to start third world war because Putin will start the nuclear attacks. Well, I have news for you. He's already working on it and it will not be a red button in Putin's room, which everybody is afraid of. It will be some explosion on Ukrainian nuclear plant. Chernobyl nuclear plant is actually turned off the electrical grid, so the cooling system is right now not working. Putin was bombarding the largest nuclear plant in Europe, which is in Ukraine right now. So what is NATO's plan? And if the plan is to support us and hope that we will win, I am telling you why we may not win, because we need the support from the air. And we may call it no-fly zone, we may call it jets, we may call it whatever. But the issue is this. If we are not getting it, then there are less chances for us to win this war. And there are more chances that it will become NATO's problem very soon. Back in February, Kira, I know you attended the Munich Security Conference and you said it was quite surreal. There was lots of talk then that Putin was definitely not going to invade Ukraine. Do you think the West has been naive about Putin and does that now make you angry? So look, the Munich conference was a week before the war started. Nobody believed that the war will begin and the sanctions were not imposed. And that was the most painful point because it's always Putin makes the step one and then the West is doing step two. 
And right now it's the same. Yes, but Western countries have now imposed unprecedented sanctions on Russia. Do you think the sanctions go far enough? And do you think they will kick in fast enough to have an effect on the war? Uh, did Putin stop? No. Was he stopped by sanctions? No. Did he like reduce his actions in Ukraine because of sanctions? No. I do understand that they will take time. And I do understand really the sacrifices that the countries are taking to impose those sanctions on Putin. My question is like when they will actually start working and when they will take him down. Because for me, it's not just like amount of days. It's amount of Ukrainian people, of my people that will get killed during those days. This is amount of the cities that will get destroyed. This is amount of people that will spill blood. I don't know if I will survive until the sanctions will work. And this is why we are asking for radical moves, for an active move. President Zelensky seems to have accepted that Ukraine cannot join NATO. He said something to that effect in an interview with American TV. Do you, Kira, see a potential deal whereby Russia takes the Donbass regions, the Russian-speaking regions, and Ukraine recognises the annexation of Crimea in return for peace and self-determination? Because doesn't there come a point where you have to cut a deal to stop the slaughter? Let me answer with a question. So what happens if we make this deal and then Putin breaks it? Right now, it seems that there is no force in the world, no organization in the world that could make him execute on the deal or keep his word. So therefore, there is like no way of making disagreement with him. I will give you an example. The city of Mariupol, the siege city where people are melting snow to get water. For five days straight, he had promised that he will let people out in humanitarian convoys. And for five days straight, these humanitarian convoys were shot by Russian soldiers. But there is nothing, nothing in the world that can be done so I can get the Ukrainian people out of the city where they are dying of hunger and dehydration. A child there died of dehydration in 21st century. In the city, in the center of Europe, a child is dying of dehydration. Because Putin decided that he is not keeping his word and he's saying it very clearly, make me. So there is only one language that he does understand. This is the language of force, language of power. And this is what we are giving him. I hear your anger and distress, but we are hearing the negotiators are making some progress. Do you think in the next couple of days we could see those humanitarian corridors? So we do hope that this will happen. And there are some humanitarian corridors that are working. But again, they are working not because Putin agreed to, but because Ukrainian armed forces were able to protect these corridors. And this is where we, again, are showing the world the only operational way to deal with Putin. The only one. Nobody believed that we will be standing for so long, that we will be fighting for so long. Everybody thought that we will fall down like on the first 24, 48 hours. No, it's amazing. I do not believe in peaceful negotiations with Putin. I solely do not believe in them. And the asks that he is making and the changes that he is making in, in these asks, they are still surreal. We are not giving up our territories. Plus, even like imagine in, in, in some point, Ukraine right now is a, a place where like half of the population is armed and fighting. So even if for some reason... Imagine that Zelensky would say, okay, I decided to cut a deal. He will come out and say, I decided to execute on this deal. And then the rest of the people will say, well, no, this is our cities. We want to take them back. Well, at least this is what I see right now on the ground. We are not giving up our people. We already spilled the blood for it. We already lost uh, people who are defending this territory. So the idea that we can give them up because Putin decided so, it's just, uh, it, it is just uh, unspeakable. And you have seen the cities of Kherson or cities of Kachovka that uh, Russians think that they occupied and people are getting out on the street and saying, no, you have not occupied us. We don't care who you are. Go away. Go to hell. And this is why I'm proud 
I'm proud of my people. I'm so proud of them. I can hear you smiling despite everything about how amazing they've been. How many women are fighting in the resistance? Like about 20% of the resistance are women right now and 15% of the armed forces. Wow. I know that the British have given Ukraine a lot of military training since 2015. I hear we've been sending many weapons. Have you felt supported by Boris Johnson, the British government? I would say that the United Kingdom gave us one of the strongest supports of all of our countries, uh, of all of our allies. I can tell you on my personal note that in November, when nobody believed that Russia will attack, and my party and I, we were saying that we do need a no-fly zone uh, from our NATO allies, and everybody was saying it's crazy. There is a British MP, Tobias with the chair of the Defense Committee, who was the first one to believe in us, to trust us, and to support us in that. And I will always remember that because that was the first person who stood up and said, yeah, guys, the situation is really critical. You guys have been amazing in this. You have given us so much support, so many uh, volunteers who came into Ukraine to fight for us. I cannot even begin to tell you. The exact amounts, I think right now, 16,000 people just solely from the United Kingdom. Really? Gosh, that's a very big number. Is that what you've heard or is that what you've been told? This is the information that we received from our intelligence, that people are volunteering and coming. Some of them are soldiers and some of them are private citizens just coming in to help, to fight for us, to become like volunteer fighters. So last night we saw something great on Russian TV. A Russian TV editor walked into the studio behind the newsreader and held up a a placard telling the Russian people what was going on. Do you hope that amazingly brave gestures like that will get through to the Russian people? We do hope that at some point Russian people will start realizing what is going on, that Putin is taking them to a really, really dark place and that he... Uh, is just destroying his own country for the reason that nobody can understand. And uh, Russian media is being completely controlled by the government. And so this is one of the signs, the signs of the protest that, you know, like uh, sprouts at some point, they, they will just like grow up. Where will Ukraine be in 20 years time, God willing? I'm hoping for my country that we will be rebuilding it. And in 20 years from now, we will be uh, the country of future that we were planning and building before Putin invaded. Building a, like a progressive, technological country where people are coming back to and not just fleeing away. So this is my goal. This is my hope. And this is what's waking me up every morning, aside of the missiles. Yes. Well, we hope you stay safe and victory to Ukraine from everyone in the UK. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your support. A very moving interview, Alison, by an extremely courageous woman. I think the whole world has been inspired and humbled, really, by the strength of feeling in Ukraine and the resilience that Ukrainian people are showing in the face of this ghastly invasion. It's genuinely strange, Liam, talking to Kira. She's been a very successful business person. She's 36. She is a leading member of the Ukrainian parliament. We heard there that they were going to be meeting in secret to vote. Just imagine a female MP in this country who's having to do weapons training. I mean, yeah, it it is extraordinary. But I think what shines through from her is exactly the reason why Putin has perhaps underestimated what Russia was getting itself into. Because as she said, they've had so much blood spilt now, they're not going to roll over. And talking about them getting ready for a siege of the capital, having lots of supplies, having water, having phone batteries, they've obviously thought it through. So I think the next week or couple of weeks is going to be very, very interesting. We're seeing the Russian invasion slowing. Obviously, the forces are massive and overwhelming, but we're reading in the Telegraph that the tanks are reluctant to go off the road. The defenders are inflicting heavy losses on these armoured convoys. And we're also hearing that the peace talks are more realistic. So I don't know, what do you think, Liam? Do you think we're going to see some kind of groundwork now for a peace deal with Zelensky finally saying that Ukraine must accept it will never join NATO? 
I think we will see something along those lines, and it's tragic that it's got to this point. I think a deal could have been done along the line of the Mince protocols, as we've discussed in the past, Alison. I'm kind of baffled why that didn't happen. The Mince protocols, by granting more autonomy to eastern Ukraine, but keeping it within Ukraine, could have done the work of not vetoing Ukrainian NATO membership on the one hand, but making it very difficult or almost impossible to happen given a more autonomous East Ukraine region. I thought that was an elegant solution, but for some reason, that's got to be for future historians to try and untangle why Minsk didn't happen. Those protocols were signed back in 2014, 2015, as we've been discussing on Planet Normal for a long time. As you rightly say, the humanitarian corridors are the priority. There's been lots of claims and counterclaims about those corridors being agreed, not agreed, holding, not holding. I think what's really incredible is as we come through this conflict and fingers, toes crossed that we are now entering an end game, though, who knows? But as we do, I think never again is the British public and certainly our political and media class ever going to ignore this part of the world anymore. The map of Ukraine is etched in all our consciousnesses for the rest of our lives. The strategic importance of that area, the importance of that part of the world for supplying not just energy, but food as well. And it's obviously ghastly that so much progress that we've made since the collapse of the Soviet Union in terms of East-West relations has now been not just dented, but in many ways almost entirely reversed. I find it extremely sad, but I am uplifted, really. And I think there's hope when there's people of the calibre of Kira involved and doing everything that they can, not just to defend their country, but also to bring about some kind of peace. It was very notable, Lynn, wasn't it, that she paid tribute to how much the British she said, you guys have been amazing. And she also mentioned the slightly jaw-dropping figure of 16,000 Brits. She'd been told by Ukrainian intelligence, both soldiers and private citizens. I can imagine that we are giving more support on the ground than we're being told. But did you think that seemed like an outlandish figure? Look, it's easy for me to sit here and be an armchair commentator in the safety of our wonderful country, isn't it? 16,000 does sound like a lot to me. I'm sure Kira's just passing on information she's been given in good faith. The Foreign Office has been unable to verify that figure. We have obviously asked. We're journalists first and foremost. But of course, our Foreign Office does advise against all British nationals at this point travelling to Ukraine for whatever reason. Now on to our listener emails. Postbag absolutely bursting this week, Halligan. Indeed. Do keep your wonderful messages coming. We love reading them. We learn so much from you, our Planet Normal listeners. And here's one from Mandy. Good afternoon. I was rather reluctantly listening to Jeremy Vine yesterday. (laughs) And there was a man on there who was talking about the transport of 100 children for cancer treatments into the UK. And he said something about these children didn't deserve to have to wait for treatment because of the war in Ukraine, in their country. Now, don't get me wrong, says Mandy. It is, of course, a wonderful gesture, but it seems a bit of a shame for children and, in fact, anyone in this country who have had to wait for cancer treatment because of COVID-19. Is that really fair? Keep up the good work, you two. Regards, Mandy. Now, to some people, that may seem a bit of a callous point of view, but I have to say a lot of people have written to us along those lines. Yes, of course, we want to help sick kids in Ukraine, but there are a lot of sick kids in this country too. So we've got to make sure that the care goes round. Indeed. This is from Charles and Christine. We've enjoyed listening to you both since the beginning and very reassuring it has been too, in spite of all the ups and downs. We have an autistic son who lives in a care home. And although they've been very good, we could not see him at all for six months, which was horrible. 
He ended up self-harming and was very frosty with us indeed when we were finally allowed to see him. Our son had no idea why he'd been abandoned and being non-verbal, we had no contact at all. We are slowly getting back to normal. However, the question I would like you to ask George is how reliable were the LFT and PCR tests? I can find no reliable information on what was the actual false positive or false negative rate for either of them. I used to use statistics during prospecting work and I know how important these numbers are. I suspect that because they are not freely available, they may be rather interesting. Listening to Liam reminded me of my one visit to Russia when I was carrying out factory surveys in Moscow and Smolensk in 1988. It was quite exciting. The owner of one factory got himself murdered while visiting Antwerp a couple of weeks after I got home. I love the Russian people and Moscow is beautiful in the early summer. My one claim to fame is that I used to jog around the Kremlin in the early morning. I think your idea of a large gathering of the Planet Normal clan to mark the 100th edition is very sound. I'm assuming you can borrow something like the Starship Enterprise, as I fear the rocket may not be large enough. All the best to you both. This is from Katie. Dear Alison and Liam, I've been an avid listener for many months but write to you for the first time, having felt compelled by my family's recent experience of NHS visiting restrictions. My mother's in hospital, having suffered a serious mental health episode towards the end of 2021. In late February, there was a COVID case on her ward, so all visits were cancelled. Whilst clearly inhumane, I also found that approach completely illogical. If COVID's already present on the ward, there's no real additional risk from allowing relatives to visit patients, especially if the relative takes a test prior to the visit. Surely the risk is actually to the relative visiting the hospital, which is known to contain the dreaded virus, and those relatives can make the assessment that the risk is absolutely worth taking to see their loved ones if they wish. Isn't that what living with COVID is? Trusting citizens to weigh up the situation and make reasoned, rational decisions. Inevitably, my mother tested positive for COVID last week in her late 60s and suffering from COPD, that's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. From her many years as a smoker, she's at the higher end of the risk spectrum. Thankfully, most likely because she's double jabbed and boosted, she experienced only a scratchy throat for a few days. But it meant an extension to her isolation. And if the virus continues to work its way around the ward, who knows when the visiting restrictions will finally be lifted. In fairness to the doctors and nurses, they're as frustrated as the relatives about the NHS Trust's rules and have told us that the worst thing you can do to someone who's in poor mental health is to isolate them from loved ones. They've also been pragmatic and allowed my mother to walk in the gardens near the ward despite being COVID positive, giving her a much needed break from the lonely confines of her hospital room. While the rest of the country lives with COVID, NHS Trust's continue, says Katie, to barbarically prevent those seriously ill in hospital from seeing their families. Despite statements to the contrary and fashionable marketing about the importance of mental health, this is further proof the NHS does not value mental health and physical health equally and still prioritises COVID above all else. Kind regards from Katie. And Val says a few questions more to add for the COVID inquiry. How on earth did they manage to spend $37 on test and trace? And what actual benefit did it have? Why did they lie about the severity of the virus? How much did they spend on advertising propaganda? Why did the BBC give Miss Sturgeon unlimited coverage for her daily political broadcasts? Where is the evidence that cloth or basic blue masks have any impact on the spread of disease? And why were the rules suddenly changed when the WHO initially said they shouldn't be used? Why were mourners prevented from seeing their deceased loved ones? When did the government become heartless and immune to the suffering induced by their nonsensical rules? Will they guarantee this will never happen again? That's it for now. I might be back, says Val. And Jack says regarding the COVID inquiry, as Sir Humphrey used to say in Yes, Minister, never agree to an inquiry unless you have decided what its conclusion will be. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Yes, Minister. Here's one from John. Greetings to both of you on this special day which coincides with this week's launch of the rockets, Thursday the 17th of March. St. Patrick's Day. And hello from this regular listener in the Emerald Isle. Speaking truth to powers you've both been doing for almost 100 episodes now is a very welcome and much needed tonic on this side of the Irish Sea as well. I like this bit. Liam is, of course, only the most recent in a long line of quality exports. Oh. 
from oh, here quality. to the UK. <laughs> the list stretches all the way back to the first Duke of Wellington and includes <laughs> Alan Turing, whose mother was Irish, not forgetting Sir Terry Wogan, Des Lynham, Willie Walsh of British Airways and the late Baroness Detta O'Cowan, to name a few among the many who have enriched our mutual understanding. Oh. Not that we want Liam to lose the run of himself, as we say in Ireland, and how could he? When you co-pilot Alison feature every Wednesday in The Telegraph and also on Planet Normal. Keep up the good work and here's to a second century of your podcast. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Best wishes from John. Oh, that's lovely. And we do definitely put Halligan in a long line of distinguished Irish exports. By the way, everyone, we will be giving you more details about the exciting 100th anniversary Planet Normal event next week, I think, Liam. It's in the works. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Alison, it's your turn. I think that lovely, touching one from Katie. She sounds like she deserves one of the special mugs. Write to us at planetnormaltelegraph.co.uk with the subject heading in your email, mug winner, and give us your address and the Planet Normal team will make sure a rare as rocking horse teeth Planet Normal mug is winging its way to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, I jolly well hope you do, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find us and it cheers Halligan and me up no end and the Planet Normal family can grow. And do keep emailing us. We love reading your emails and we learn so much from you, our Planet Normal listeners. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 